Please, if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus, the 15th chapter, and remain standing as we read. Exodus 15 is what's titled the Song of Moses. Song is a great gift, I think, to God's people to give us an expression of the praise of our hearts. You've heard us sing this morning an adoration of God. And then we followed that by singing about our need for ongoing mercy of God. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We confess then in our third song that we are pilgrims walking on a difficult road, but we are not forsaken or abandoned because Christ is ours forevermore. And then we confessed in that rhythm, in that ongoing praise, that he alone is God seated on his throne. That was the fourth. Now we come to the fifth song of the day, and it's from Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depth like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You sent out your fury and it consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead to the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love and the people who you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inheritance, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you've purchased. You will bring them in. Plant them on your own mountain. The place 
O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the water of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to its reading. You can be seated, and children, you can be dismissed to children's church. There is a wonderful rhythm in spiritual worship. The longer the Lord leads me in worship, the more thankful I am for that rhythm. There is a sort of cause and effect. There is in spiritual worship a sort of involuntary response to God. You see that in one place clearly in John 4. Jesus meets the woman at the well and he reveals himself to her and she worships. Her worship prompts people of the city to come and see the Messiah, and they believe. And, and they say, we believe because of her testimony. So there is this revelation response rhythm in worship. We worship because we've known God. We don't worship because we've created this great atmosphere. Matt Nikolai does a, a fantastic job as one of our, our team of worship leaders and it, it might not be his, his most natural expression and personality, but he, he leads us in worship not because he is somehow uniquely prepared for that, but because he's seen the revelation of who God is and worships in spirit and truth and leads us to that same thing as he did this morning and so many help us with in church. This great rhythm of look who God is and echo the expression of our joy in worship. We do it all kinds of ways. I wonder if you have favorite hymns. There are those hymns. Chris Menard has shared with me some of his favorite hymns. He has requested these. That's the one I want sung at my funeral. I remember. And if I'm still around when that happens, I'll tend to that. A mighty fortress is our God might be one of your favorite. Nothing but the blood. Amazing grace. These might be some of our favorite expressions of our response to the revelation of God. That's what we're studying in Exodus 15. Moses leads the people in an expression of worship in response to how he has recently revealed himself. The title for the sermon this morning is simply The Song of Moses. The messenger Moses comes to tell the people early on in the book, God has seen your plight and he has taken mercy on you. Moses and Aaron come and say to Pharaoh, God will deliver his people. And then God pours out these ten plagues on the people. Ultimately, the horrific night of the Passover 
for the unbelieving Egyptians. And finally, as God had promised, the people, or the Egyptians thrust the people of Israel out of the land. They usher them out of the land. Then, as they start their journey into God's promised land, it takes an unpredictable course. And they wind up hemmed in by the sea. Pharaoh sees it, assumes that the God of Israel has abandoned them, or at least taken some sort of hiatus, and says, let's go get them. It's just us versus them now. We can't overcome their God, but we certainly can overcome them. They pursue them to the Red Sea, and the people complain. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? We had to be buried here by the Red Sea? They thought they were going to die. Which, by the way, I would still contend was not, even as we hear in the Song of Moses, they feared for their lives. I don't think that was the intent. And I'll talk more about that later. I think the intent was to bring their slave labor force back to Egypt. The people grumble. They back up to the bank of the sea. They are hemmed in. Hope seems lost. God intervenes. God reveals himself. They walk through, throughout the night, on the dry sea bed of the Red Sea. During the third watch, the waning hours of the night, the Egyptian army pursues them. Bogged down, confused, anxious, dismayed, panic strike. Israel gets through, exits the bank, and then turns around and watches. And the Bible says, as the sun rose, and maybe, I suggested last week, maybe there was some glimmer of false hope for the Egyptians. Our God, Amun-Ra, has come back from the dead. They believed every night when the sun went down, their God, Amun-Ra, died. And every morning when the sun came up, their God, Amun-Ra, was resurrected. And when the sun rose, perhaps to be witnessed by Amun-Ra, but definitely to be witnessed by Israel and Egypt, the Lord allowed the waters to crash back in and defeated the enemies of God and saved the people of God. And as they bear witness to that, standing on the bank of the Red Sea, they sing. That's the rhythm of worship. They sing to the Lord. Let's look back to chapter 14, and let's just read the last paragraph. Exodus 14, verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course, When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. No one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. 
Moses and the people sang a song of praise to God. I'm going to say this, and I'll come back to it when we're done studying the song. The song is less than perfect, as most of our expressions of worship are. Sometimes they are less than perfect, and this one is less than perfect. There is a grievous omission in the song. Wow, it has many benefits. If we were to break the song apart, I'm not musical, but maybe some of you are. If we were to break the song apart, it seems that verses 1 through 6 are sort of the first stanza. If you write in your Bible, you might want to make some marks here, because this is how I'm going to walk us through the song in just a moment. Verses 1 through 6 are sort of the first stanza. 7 through 12 represent a second stanza. 13 through 16, a third stanza. Then 17 and 18 give us a sort of epilogue to the previous stanzas, and 19 through 21 are like a refrain. So I'm going to use that outline as we go, and I'm going to simplify it and take all those stanzas and put them into two categories. Simply this, past and future. I think, as we study this, you'll see that the song expresses praise for things past and for things future. Let me pray for our time. Father, I ask that you would direct us by your spirit through your word, that, that this great teacher who has been given to us would illuminate the truth of this and illuminate to us where it will shape us as Christians to mature us in our faith, in our obedience, in our praise of you. So we pray that you would direct us. I pray, God, that you would guard and guide my preaching so that it would be honest and true, bound to Scripture's revelation. I pray not selfishly just for myself and this Christian gathering, but as we heard this morning from Quentin Bernard, I pray for his pulpit ministry today too, as he preaches to the congregation you've given him in a place that seems like such rocky soil. I pray that the power of your spirit would break forth and produce multiplied fruit in their mission field. In Christ's name, amen. Let me walk us through these two parts, past and future. First of all, let's look at verses 1 through 12, those stanzas, and see that they all express a praise for what God has already done. Verses 1 through 12 express a praise for what God has already done. Look at verses 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I, I could stop there and preach a whole sermon about what good worship is. Um, you, sometimes we refer to the, the group that served us this morning as the worship team. I understand that we're trying to make a distinction, but we are the worship team, right? They are giving us vocal cues and musical cues, but we are the worship team. The people sang to the Lord. The worship team doesn't sing to us. We sing together to the Lord. But I'll stop preaching that. <laughs> the rest of the verse, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God 
and I praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This song starts with a sort of summons to praising. Come and we sing, for the Lord has triumphed gloriously. The results of all of these plagues and the victory at the Red Sea made it obvious to worshipers God has triumphed gloriously. Then verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. It's a metaphor for how God should inspire us to true expressions of our happiest, most joy-filled praise. Often, that does come out in song. I want you to understand that there are a lot of opportunities to praise God that aren't just song, but fittingly, a lot of times when praise is induced in us as the Lord is our strength, our joy, it comes out in song. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. This song emphasizes God's willingness and identity as a champion of war. Israel is going to be born by covenant at Mount Sinai as a nation. They will be born by covenant. And as the people progress into God's plan for them, they will have to fight. Within just a few weeks of this event, the nation, the young nation, will take to their first physical battle. They will fight the Amalekites in chapter 17. On their own, they would be without hope. Therefore, it's very important that they confess and identify that the Lord is a man of war. The same is true, of course, of our Savior, Jesus. Necessarily a conquering warrior for us. Let me, let me just expound on that. 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed by him is death. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is a conquering man of war. And in the end, the book of Revelation wonderfully communicates to us that everything God has promised does come to pass. In Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name of which the rider is called by is the Word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. Look then next with me at 4 through 7. With verses 6 and 7 being sort of the central theme of this song. If you were to say, which part of this is Moses really driving home? It would be verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, this verse combines observations about God's power and his victory over the enemy. Glorious in power, he shattered the enemy. We might look at verse 7 and read it this way. 
In your great majesty, you smashed your foes. You sent forth your fury. It consumed them like stubble. There is an important theological truth incorporated here. God will eventually destroy those who oppose him. His anger against evil does not diminish his majesty, but in fact is an inherent aspect of his majesty. Let me read this quote from one commentator on Exodus 15. Some sentimentalists think God must be ever tolerant, always soft-hearted, and thus they define God's justice as something of an involuntary or regrettable act in God. In fact, the just God revealed in the Bible will not tolerate sin and plans for its eventual and total elimination. I want you to only understand this because I I don't think you find wrath or anger or justice to be inconsistent with God. I don't think that's true. I simply want you to take maybe the next step and understand that his wrath, his anger, doesn't somehow diminish his majesty, but in fact magnifies it. Ours is a holy God. Ours is not a compromising or somehow or sometimes indifferent God. That reality doesn't diminish his majesty, but it does magnify it. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the very foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are are the thing your throne sits on. They're not some sort of regrettable afterthought of God, like, well, that didn't go well, so I guess now I have to do this. Yet, that's very popular. And frankly, Christian, if you want to make a lot of money writing books, write a book that says what God is most like is loving, benevolent, soft-hearted, and somehow imply he's a little bit indifferent to sin. And people will buy your book in droves. Assuming that it somehow serves God well by us emphasizing that he doesn't want to do things we don't enjoy. He doesn't want to do things we find unwelcome or unpleasant. But sometimes he just has to. That's not true. He is magnifying his holiness. He is majestic in his just anger. Those who are offended by that are wishing for a reality that does not exist in the Bible. In verses 8 through 12, they continue to sing this song of praise, and they, they reflect back. Can you imagine how this song would have passed on from generation to generation of God's people, and they would have, they would have sung this over and over? And in verses 8 through 12, they would have expressed some particulars about the water that day. They would sing, it piled up, it stood up like a wall. And then the Egyptians are congealed, mixed with, you can't tell where one starts and the other one ends, in the heart of the sea. And the song 
says that the Lord blew out from his nostrils and the waters parted. And he blew again out from his nostrils and the waters crashed back in. The deeps churned in the heart of the sea. This part of the song recreates a general attitude of the Egyptians. In verse 9, the army expected to be rewarded for their plunder. They had full confidence as they, as they came upon the Israelites. We're going we're gonna to get the plunder. And keep in mind, Israel's got a lot of stuff to take because they had taken a lot of stuff with them. And so the army says, okay, that was civilian property, but we're going to overtake them and, and the, the loot will be the soldiers. So they expect to receive the plunder. As I said before, if, if you want to look back to chapter 14, verse 5, I don't think it was the intent of the Egyptian army to kill their slave labor force, but rather to capture them. And then, of course, the ultimate plan, at least from Pharaoh, as he instructs his army, is to crush all Israelite resistance. But, look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The psalmist poses a question for all of us who worship God. All of us who are theologians, we're students of who God is. And the psalmist poses this question. If you were to write down with no knowledge of the one true God, and you were to write down what he would be like and what he would do, how long would it take you to conjure up in your imagination the fame of the God of the Bible? I don't think we would ever get there. What's been revealed to us is extraordinary. Who is like you? All the gods, small g, that man has fabricated and peddled to other people as a religious expression, all of them fail in comparison to the God of the Bible. Who is like you? Glorious among all those regarded as holy, awesome in praiseworthy acts and true wondrous works is what verse 11 says. So the victory hymn mentions now twice the strong right hand of God. The significance of the right hand is inconsequential, but the fact that they confess your hand has delivered us is significant. Because if you've been with us in the study of Exodus, you remember that when God first sent Moses to go to Pharaoh, he says he's not going to believe, his heart's going to be hard. But a strong hand will deliver the people. And they sing in response to the revelation, your hand is the strong hand that has delivered us. And in delivering us, the underworld, literally the underworld, swallowed up our enemies. They didn't just fail to conquer them. They failed to survive the attempt. They sing that God has spared them. I, I, just, I wonder if to this point you find a lot of common ground with this song. Is it a genuine song of your heart to sing, God has saved me? I wonder if you understand 
that the Egyptian army, as terrifying as it was, was not one to be ultimately feared. Jesus posed the question, why do you fear those who can't affect your soul, but only your body? That's the Egyptian army. The Egyptian army couldn't conquer the Israelites' souls. The Egyptian army, as strong as they were, as mighty in battle, couldn't change eternity. I wonder if you'll see that your enemy, sin, is so much greater than the Egyptian army. And I wonder, therefore, if being saved from your enemy, I wonder if you sing praise to your Savior. I, I hope, I hope, that like so many worship expressions of Scripture, I hope this is one that we read and go, yes, that's how I feel. It would be helpful. They sing praise for what's happened. But there's a transition that takes place in verse 12 and 13. They say, because this is what's happened, we're pretty sure we know what's going to happen next. Now, this is very important for me as a teacher. I do want you to have great discernment and boldness in perceiving the future based on the past, okay? So what happens here is we move from past expression of praise for what God has done to a future expectation of praise for what God's going to do. That's what happens, past and future. And here we stand, verse 12 to 13, we make the shift. From verse 13 to the end of the song, Moses uses what's the equivalent of a perfect tense. As he talks about what's going to happen, he uses what's called a perfect tense or a prophetic perfect tense. Here's what that looks like. Prophetic perfect tense is when someone journeys into the past, observes what God is like, and then comes to the present to prophesy, this is what God will continue to do. Which, this works with God, because there's no shadow of turning or change with God. So you can go to past things, and you can tell the people of God, you can expect more of that. And so, this is the turn of the hymn, where God is sending Moses and the people who in that first generation stand on the banks and say, this is what God did, and they start singing, this is what God's going to do. And they start singing, he's going to do it to the Moabites and the Philistines and the Canaanites. This is where it's really important that we also tie the past to the future. Okay, before I get too much more into that, there is a really important theme that's stressed here theologically in this text. For those of you who are going to Josh's class on, on biblical theology, this might be something you've already heard him describe or something that simply repeats what he's been saying. The story of ancient Israel includes this important Bible theme. God called the people out from where they had been born. God bound those people to himself in covenant, and God will lead those people to union with him and his everlasting blessing. That is a common theme of Scripture. You, you could argue 
that that is the theme of redemption in Scripture. God calls the people from where they are, in covenant binds them to himself, and then prepares for them, with him, a place of holy blessing forever. So, they sing this song, still on the bank of the Red Sea. They hadn't yet arrived in Canaan. Yet, they are proclaiming already what they're going to experience going forward. Look at verse 14 through 16. This section summarizes what they expect to see. They expect that Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan are all frozen in fear. And that Israel will walk past them in their state of paralyzed terror and God will deliver them. That's what they expect. That's how we would summarize verses 14 through 16. They start with Philistia. It's good that they're mentioned first. That's kind of the first opposition and the one that lasts the longest. They move on and say, we're confident that we'll have victory over Edom, Moab, and the Canaanites. Again, the order in which they will do conflict with them. Verse 16 starts this way. You will bring down upon them terror and dread. By your great power, they will be frozen with fear like stones. They'll be like stones. doesn't mean they're going to be something hard to conquer. It means they're going to be paralyzed with fear. By the way, I'm not going to take time to elaborate, but there are several occasions where that's exactly what happened. Uh, There's one particular battle with the Philistines where the Bible tells us that God thundered in the heavens. The Philistines thought every earthly battle was won or lost based based on a a duplicate battle that happened in the heavens. So there was a a battle in the heavens, and whatever happened in the heavens was what was going to happen on earth. And they heard this great thundering in the heavens, and they thought, that must be the sound of the mightier army falling, and the Philistines ran away because of psychological warfare by our God about what they thought was happening in the heavens. He struck them with such terror that they wouldn't even fight that day, and they ran away. You know, when the spies get into Canaan and they find a hospitality from Rahab, what does she say? Oh, we've heard about you. We've, we've seen the Jordan pile up. We, we know what's going on. We know whose God is yours. That's what they sing about. The Lord will paralyze them in fear. And we will walk by. We will have victory because of what our God has done. We're confident he will do. God creates a people. Verse 16b through 18. God's eternal holy holy dwelling place is prepared for them look at verse 17 and then in verse 18 the eternal reign of god supreme over all things let's let's read it in verse 16 the bible says terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm they are as still paralyzed as stones until your people, O Lord, pass by. So the people pass by whom you have purchased. There's the first part. God has prepared for his namesake 
a particular people. Philistines, Moabites, Edomites, Canaanites, a particular people, Israel. 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. This has already been promised. Mount Zion will be theirs. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, in that place there will be first tabernacle and then ultimately temple, which your hand has established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Future tense. Then in verse 20 and 21, we find the first mention by name of a woman named Miriam. Miriam is described here as being the, the sister of Aaron. It's not because she's not the sister of Moses. It's just because Aaron's the older brother. And so if she's to be a sister, she's going to be the sister of the oldest brother. So Moses writes down, he's like, Miriam is, is Aaron's sister. It's a humble expression. This is the first time she's mentioned by name, but I, I'm pretty sure, I have an opinion that this is the sister who saves Moses from certain death and offers up her mom as his nursemaid. When, she was in the, when Moses was in the basket, I'm pretty sure Miriam is that sister. who's was not named earlier. Miriam is defined as a prophetess. Miriam seems to have a reputation as being one who faithfully conveys verbally to other people the instruction of God. There are several women in Scripture who are called prophetesses. Deborah in Judges, Huldah in 2 Kings, Isaiah's wife. There are some women who are called prophetesses who are not known for their faithfulness as well. The song of Moses that she leads the women to express is, Sing to the Lord, He has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Song of Moses is an important expression of a prophetic perfect tense. I wonder, here's how I'll pose this question to you. Do you have a prophet speaking into your life this morning, this is what God has done. Therefore, our unchanging, ever faithful God is certainly going to do this in the future. I wonder if you have a prophet like that in your life. Probably at this point, some of the elders are going, oh boy, pastor is inviting prophets into our lives. Here's what I mean. Is there a testimony of God's faithfulness to you from the past that is proclaiming to your heart right now i'm confident that's what he'll do in the future okay this is what i mean uh, you and i not entirely unlike the israelites we're in bondage the bible calls our bondage a deadness we sing about being incarcerated in a dungeon. But then our chains fell off. 
light bursts forth and we are free. We were enslaved. But God delivered us from the power and authority of sin. And I wonder if that prophesies to you. God has saved you. I wonder if you can see your salvation. I wonder if you can see your salvation. You might say, I, I can't, because it's in the future. If that's the only way you see your salvation, then do you see yourself on the bank of the Red Sea, completely ignoring the, the, the dividing of the sea, the separating of the sea, and standing there going, ooh, Philistines. I just am not sure if we'll be saved from them. Because you're totally ignoring that you've just been saved from Egypt, that you've just been saved from the Red Sea. But do you look back on seeing the way that the resurrected Christ has, in your place, given victory over sin? We call this regeneration. Do you see the breath of life in you today? Can you see your salvation? No? then there is not a prophet telling you that the future is secure. You should not have reason to believe that a faithful, consistent God is going to save you into eternal life. You should not have that confidence. But if you can look at your life and say something like this, I am not what I should be but I am not what I used to be. Then you can be sure that you are not yet what you will someday be. Does the prophet of your new life, dead, gone, eyes opened, spirit living in, like you think the spirit's living in people who can't tell? Regeneration is the prophet saying to you, God has saved you, and he will save you. And then you take this second half of the song, and you don't have to just sing about what God has done. We sing about what's coming. Minor days that God has numbered. And I was made to walk with him. Many are these trials, but Christ is mine forevermore. And we sing songs like that sincerely because the prophet of our past says, you're no longer enslaved to sin. That's right. God saved me, and he saves me forevermore. I told you at the beginning that I think this song lacks something it is right and appropriate response to the revelation of god it is a good worship and praise song however it comes short the purpose of the exodus is not freedom it's worship 
Keep that in mind, please. The purpose of the Exodus is not freedom. It's worship. The purpose of our being saved from the bondage of sin is not freedom, but worship. There is, though, something missing in their celebration. Certainly there's adoration for what God's done, but there's not perspective. There is nothing in the song that looks at all like confession. There's nothing in the song that looks like lament, and therefore there's nothing in the song that looks like indebtedness to grace. I am, I'm struck by so many similarities. You know, the Song of Solomon. Vanity of vanities. There's nothing new. We are in this cycle. And I can take you back to the bank of the Red Sea and see something that's occurring in the life of religious people and say, it's just another cycle today. Praising, 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 but missing grace entirely. Grace. David's song, 2 Samuel 17, David confesses and says, this relationship must be founded or rooted in grace. Isaiah's worship. You know when Isaiah goes in the temple and he sees the holiness of God, what we call a Shekinah glory, like the holiness of God like pressed on Isaiah. And what does he say? Ah, the Lord saved us from our enemies. We walked across on dry ground. Woo-hoo. He doesn't say that. He throws his hand over his lips and goes, I am a man of unclean lips and everyone around me is the same. Isaiah says, I'm a debtor of grace. Mary gets word from the angel. The child in you is the Messiah. And Mary expresses her need for salvation and grace. Those songs all include expression of confession, lament, and need for ongoing grace. The song of Moses lacks lament. It talks a lot about God being there to get them out of trouble. But there is no reference to their ongoing dependence on his grace. One people stand on the dry bank of the Red Sea. Another people have been drowned under the crushing waves. And Israel doesn't know why there's a difference. Good thing we ran fast. Because that was coming back in. Who knew? You say, well, Pastor, aren't you, aren't you assuming something? I don't think I am. You know what we're going to study next? The next study through several chapters is going to take us through four expressions of Israel's small faith, unbelief, and disobedience. How can that be? Maybe it's because they thought of God's providence as some sort of a, like a lucky charm, like a rabbit's foot. 
that'll get us out of trouble. <laughs> he, must, he must really be indebted to us for something. I, I can't remember what it is, but certainly we have done something to make him like us more than everybody else. So what follows is this return to sinning. God doesn't do for them what they felt they deserved. That's exactly what happens next. They go into this fighting, this conflict. Like, it's still hard. Mm. Our lucky charm is not living up to his reputation. We have that song that says he'll get us out of stuff, and now he's not. Maybe he forgot that he owes us this. And that, that is a culture and an economy completely devoid and ignorant of grace. Nothing new under the sun. Completely oblivious that we are debtors to future grace. It's not, it's not hopeless, though. We sing songs like Amazing Grace. And when we do, we have this testimony from Newton. It goes like this. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Newton got it. Grace has brought me to where I am today, and grace is the prophet telling me I'm heading home. What if we don't have a prophet saying grace? What if we have a prophet saying, you're smarter? What if we have a prophet saying, you were patient to hear about Jesus? What if we have a prophet saying, someone came to you and spoke really well? Then we say with Israel, thankfully we ran faster than the chariots through the Red Sea. And running faster might also lead us home. Jesus, Jesus, preaches the first of his great discourses in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Let me finish by saying this song, this song is going to be our song in heaven. Get to know it. We're going to sing it in heaven. The song of Moses. The Bible tells us in Revelation 19, we are going to sing that song. <clears throat> The Bible says, I'm sorry, it's Revelation 15. In Revelation 15, we will sing this song and 
the song of the Lamb. Exodus 15 is going to get another verse. And it'll be right then. We will sing, Lord, you have saved us. And the Lamb is our salvation forevermore. We will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. That's exactly what Revelation 15 says. We will sing the song of salvation to the Lamb. We have been taught, we have been taught, we have been taught in the covenant of redemption to sing praise for our salvation by the glorious adoption, by the glorious ransom of Christ on the cross. And its regeneration of us prophesies to our soul. He will save us forever. Worship God. Worship God, but only in an economy, in an arena of grace. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all of our praise. Jesus Christ taught that Samaritan woman at the well that there are so many who worship what they don't know. You condemn even many of this nation Israel by saying that their lips honor you, but their hearts are far from you. One who is their kindred according to the flesh your apostle Paul says that he wishes he could give himself in death sentence for them to truly know the grace of salvation. In ignoring your grace, they tried to create other means of confidence. And they go on to erect all sorts of regulations and procedures to follow because they must have assumed that the relationship they had with you was somehow dependent on regulation, on performance. And so as we prepare ourselves now through studying, through singing together the song of Moses, we are thankful that in the end, that song will have another verse. The verse of the Lamb. And we who now know that it is grace that has brought us safe thus far, know that it is grace that leads us home. This truth is, is special. But Father, I pray that your spirit would guard us from it just being amusing, but that it would be transforming. That it would shape the way we share the message of Christ. That it would shape the way we live with expectation 
that regenerate, spirit-filled people are being transformed. And that we would be forever to the praise of your glory. And all of the church said together, Amen. Let's stand together and sing.